We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are going to be talking about the new movie streaming on Netflix, Good Grief, written by, directed by, and starring Daniel Levy, who uh, is- Also uh, produced by Daniel Levy. Produced by as well, the whole trifecta uh, or quadfecta, um, <laughs> uh, uh, who uh, listeners might know Daniel Levy best uh, from the uh, massively successful series Schitt's Creek, uh, which he uh, created along with uh, his father, Eugene Levy, uh, and uh, and also uh, the uh, recent uh, series on Max, the reality series uh, cooking competition, uh, The Big Brunch. Uh, which I also uh, rather enjoyed. Jesse, you want to tell us a little bit about Good Grief? Sure. Good Grief, not a biopic of Charlie Brown, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and this may be, right? Uh, that I would have watched. That, this, that I would have watched. This may be a hot take. I was not a Shit's Creek fan. Couldn't get into oh. it. The first season was really slow. I did not think it was funny. Um, watched Good Grief. It really uh, hit me. It, it was a, a sad movie. It starts off uh, in London where Daniel Levy, uh, is, who plays Mark, is um, having a Christmas party with friends, with his husband, Oliver, uh, as they always do. They sing along. Oliver, who is a successful young adult author, I believe the books that he writes are, are quite similar to the Hunger Games type of of young adult novels and subsequent films. We find out soon after in that first scene that he gets in a car accident just seconds later on his way to the airport for what uh, he says is a book signing on Christmas in Paris, in Paris. Uh, and then there's a flash forward. I like to, how you threw that French in there for, uh, for, uh, for all our Francophile listeners. <laughs> Uh, and a year later, there's a flash forward. Bonus points if you had prefaced it by saying, pardon my French. <laughs> uh, and, well, well the, the, the city of Paris really comes into play. Much of the film ends up taking place in Paris because uh, a year later, Mark, surrounded by his best friends, Sophie and, and Thomas, try to get him through his grief. Uh, he opens a note, a Christmas card that Oliver gave to him that night before leaving in the taxi to go to Paris, which a year later he hadn't uh, read. And uh, it actually tells him that he's met somebody else um, and that somebody else ends up being this man, Luca. Uh, Mark, when meeting with uh, their accountant, their their financial advisor, because he got an advance on the book by the publisher, but he never, but Oliver never wrote the book because he died in this car accident. Uh, they owed a lot of money, and so the financial advisor said, "You're going to have to sell your your flat in Paris, uh, flat that he never knew about." And turns out it's a flat that he used um, 
to meet this this man who he was in a relationship with. Um, and so Mark decides to tell Sophie and Thomas they're going to go this one year anniversary, the, the first yard site, if you will. And they're going to go to this flat as a way to move on to this next life stage. But for Mark, it's really about understanding this part of Oliver that was kept secret. And uh, they end up meeting Luca. They end up all... Uh, uh, getting drunk and Thomas gets really upset because he doesn't know where Mark is. Mark ends up going off um, with a man that, that he had uh, met previously um, that um, and Sophie ends up being found in a bus station outside of Paris uh, because she was quite high and drunk uh, and um after their trip to Paris, they acknowledge the things about themselves um, that they have trouble with, right? That Sophie apologizes. Um, she feels like that she has commitment issues. Thomas feels like he fears that he's never good enough to be the one for any man. Um, and Mark ends up staying. Um, he ends up staying um, for a little bit longer. Um to see Theo one last time, this man who helps him get over his grief and his anger towards Oliver. Uh, Luca acknowledges, apologizes to Mark and says that, you know, I guess Oliver had wanted an open relationship, uh, but Oliver didn't want to leave Mark because he loved Mark. And the movie concludes with Return to London, uh, where he he sells his home, uh, their, their nice home that they had in London, and he moves to, uh, I guess, what is the English equivalent to the suburbs. Uh, he moves to a cottage house, but he starts painting again. And then a year later, the next Christmas, we see that Sophie's back together with Terrence. They're engaged. Thomas has a new boyfriend. Uh, and Mark has an art gallery opening. Uh, Mark was an artist. Uh, when he began this relationship with Oliver, he was um, illustrating um, for him, his books. But uh, Mark's portraits include one of himself, of Sophie, of Thomas, of Oliver, of Theo, this man that he he met um, in Paris. Um, and it's a place of moving on, a place of acceptance. And his art helps him process his grief. Um, for me, it was a really interesting take on grief. Judaism, we talk about different stages of grief. And for me, this movie begins really for the most point, besides that first initial scene, at the one-year mark, at that first yard site, when for Judaism's purposes, we've moved on from Shiva and Shloshim and, and that first year of St. Kaddish. Uh, and the movie acknowledges that it's only at that one-year mark when Mark, played by Daniel Levy, begins to grapple with the grief and the anger and the betrayal that he's feeling. Um did I shed a tear? Yes. Uh, did I enjoy it? Yes. Did I find it was moving? Uh, I did. Um, I also, as a Francophile myself, somebody who loves Paris, I should note that I immediately, right when they walked into the lobby at night, I said, that's the Musée de Leandre where uh, the Monet room is. I called it by the lobby, which uh, my wife thought that that was super weird and strange that I had that random memory of our trip to Paris, which was five years ago. Mike, what did you think of the movie? So I did not love this one. Uh, I was uh, primed to like it. I thought uh, uh, it was um, uh, dealing with a subject uh, 
that has been coming up uh, quite a bit in pop culture. And we've discussed in a number of different instances over the past few years in particular. It just seems that this is part of the cultural conversation, uh, uh, grieving the process of grief um, uh, and so on. Uh, and, and so I thought you know, that this was going to be a, 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 an opportunity to uh, deal with that process um, you know, really thoughtfully and head on, but also, you know, in compelling entertainment. I love Daniel Levy. I I, I love Schitt's Creek. Um, I'm uh, in the midst, actually, of a, another go-through of the series right now. Um, I'm among the people who uh, will tell you that uh, you got to push through a little bit of the first season uh, to fall in love with the characters, and then it starts getting uh, really, really good. Uh, that was my experience of it. Uh, personally, I, I, I tried it a couple of times because I loved, I didn't know about Daniel Levy, but I love Eugene Levy. I love Catherine O'Hara. Uh, I love um, uh, Chris Elliott, right? Just uh, just really great comic performers. I was like, I'm going to love this show. And I watched the first episode or two and I said, oh, this is, I don't, you know, I, I don't get it. Um, but then I, but then uh, after it got so much buzz, I revisited it and, um, and then, and then really fell in love with it. So, and I love Daniel Levy. I think that he has such a great quality to him of being able to mix really uh, deep pathos um, with really kind of cutting humor. Um, and that's what I was hoping for in Good Grief. Um, uh, uh, it, it, it wasn't a funny movie. It was not. Um, it was billed as a, you know, as a, a, a dramedy or a, or, or a, you know, romantic comedy even uh, on some level. Um, uh, but it was, you know, heavy on the drama, a very dour kind of somber drama um, and, uh, and, and not a lot of uh, uh, comedy uh, at all, um, which is fine. I mean, I think that that's just a matter of expectations going in that I was expecting um, to, you know, to, to see something with, with more comic overtones. Um, but I didn't think that the drama was particularly effective. I think what I kept on saying to myself during the course of the movie um, is, you know, really kind of one of the cliches, cardinal rules of writing uh, and of storytelling, uh, which is show, don't tell. And I felt like the movie did a lot of telling, uh, but not a lot of showing. Um, I think that they talked about grief, but didn't actually show the process of grief. Um, uh, uh, they, they talked about the year of grieving, but they didn't really show much of any of that. They showed a little bit of the funeral and uh, and and the the problematic nature of it. They showed a little bit of the relationship uh, before uh, the the death of uh, of the husband, um, and then they showed you know uh, the the aftermath of the of the one year mark now that's kind of an interesting premise right that you you know go through what you think is the right process of grief um for what for the person you imagine that you are grieving only to find out later on that you didn't grieve for the right things um that's an interesting premise, I think. Um, that's not what I expected to see. And I don't think that they dealt with it in a particularly effective way. But I do think that that does raise some questions. I think that that what I was hoping to get out, and Daniel Levy is you know, maybe obviously or famously uh, uh, Jewish, um, I, I would have been interested to see uh, uh, some of that Jewish background uh, brought into this in, in, uh, in more overt ways uh, yeah, than there, there was none was. of that. Right. Um, uh, um, whether, you know, as a comment about how it was not effective or how it was effective, I mean, certainly it seemed uh, the movie was trying to show that uh, that that uh, Daniel Levy's characters 
friends and, and, and social connections really kind of helped him get through um, the year of grief and presenting it as a year of grief is, all, is, is also very uh, uh, noteworthy from a Jewish perspective. Having the year anniversary, the first Yortzeit, uh, be a significant milestone in which you're going to, you know, take some time with the memory of your loved one was, you know, very Jewishly resonant. Um, and we don't often ask about, um, uh, uh, I mean, sometimes we might, right? But uh, but but the new things that we learn about uh, our loved ones only after they die, uh, um, and that uh, create a whole different image of a of a person um, for good or bad after they die is something that we don't, I think, spend a lot of time talking about when we talk about Jewish uh, grief. So I think that that premise is actually an intriguing one about how that impacts the process of grieving. I just didn't think that the movie did it in a very effective way. Um, I, I think that's fair. Um, I also was disappointed that this did not uh, show any elements of Jewish ritual when it comes to grieving. Uh, it was unclear, actually, if, well, Daniel Levy presents uh, as quite Jewish, if this was meant to be a Jewish character at all. The movie begins with a Christmas Eve party. Um Although that could be sort of societal celebration, could have been an interfaith relationship. Uh, although the the funeral was also in a, a church, um, you know, it's interesting when Daniel Levy was interviewed about this movie, uh, he called it a romantic comedy. It wasn't a comedy at all. Um, but where was the romance? And I think you're spot on that that romance focused on the romance of friendship. Um, right. It was it was more of a love story between Mark, Sophie and Thomas, like the, the love that you have of your closest friends than it was the love that you have of a spouse or a partner um, and how we depend on community. And this is the 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 Jewish element that I thought was key, how we depend on community to get us through grief. Right. You cannot get through grief alone. Um he got through grief with his friends, not just his friends coming to Paris with him, not just his friends taking him out, setting up, you know, dating profile for him or whatever. Uh, it was his friends who literally picked him up out of bed physically and metaphorically and brought him on this next stage of life and were there for him Um each and every stage. The beauty of, of Jewish ritual when it comes to grief is that even after that year of mourning, the reason we have the yard site every year is because it's an acknowledgement that we never stop grieving, right? We adjust to the reality of the world around us. Um, but I never, I, I see this with members of our community uh, and, and it's always right somewhat uh, surprising and shocking, but until I experienced grief myself, right, I didn't fully understand or appreciate it. The tears that stream down somebody's face when they're saying Kaddish, somebody's 18th, 19th, 20th yard site, right? An entire generation, somebody ha has no longer been walking this earth and the sobs that people uh, cry um are totally understandable. One, because grief comes at you like the tide, right? Sometimes it's quiet. 
Sometimes it's safe for us to go swimming in those waters. And sometimes we actually have to move our chairs back on the beach. We can't go swimming in, in the ocean because the, the the tide will will take us underwater. It's so dangerous and it's so unbearable. It's so uncontrollable. Uh, and it comes out of nowhere, right? In one moment, the tide could be could be quiet and calm. And by the afternoon, uh, it is dangerous and, and the waves will bring you under. Uh, and that is grief. And the things that bring upon that grief, that trigger that grief, uh, are beyond our control. It could be a memory that comes up. It could be a food that we taste. It could be a place that we go. It could be a conversation we have. It could be a relationship. It could be any and all of that, right? Mark's relationship with Theo helped him heal, helped him process his anger, but also triggered the grief because he wasn't sure he was ready to move on from this loving relationship he had with Oliver and how he processed that love he had with Oliver in spite of the anger that he had for some of that betrayal. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's right. I, uh, uh, the image that that comes to mind is, as I was listening to uh, your reflections, Jesse, is you know, one of the the first rituals of mourning in uh, in, in Jewish tradition is known as kriya, which means uh, tearing. Um, and uh, uh, many people still practice uh, the, um, uh, the the traditional way of doing that, which is to actually you know tear your outermost uh, layer of clothing. Um, uh, but but others uh, will do it kind of symbolically by pinning a ribbon to their uh, outermost layer of clothing and uh, and and tearing the that black ribbon. Um, I was uh, just uh, reading uh, my teacher, Sharon Browse's uh, beautiful new book called The Amen Effect, uh, friend of the show, Sharon Browse. Uh, uh, and, um, and, you know, she talks about um, her father-in-law um, uh, when, uh, when, when his father died. Uh, uh, his father had an, uh, an Orthodox rabbi officiating the funeral, and it was uh, time to, to do Kriya. Uh, and uh, her father-in-law had his, you know, best suit on uh, for the for the funeral. And the Orthodox rabbi, you know, insisted that he do it in the traditional way of tearing his outermost layer of, uh, of clothing um, instead of the symbolic gesture of put, putting a ribbon on and tearing that. And he objected. He said, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to tear this suit. This is my best suit. And the rabbi said to him, okay, but this was your best father, right? Um, you know, the, the implication being that like that, that, uh, that the uh, magnitude of our grief um, is uh, uh, proportionate to the depth of our relationship. Um, and so we uh, ought to express it in a significant way. Um the, you know, the greater the light, the greater the shadow, that sort of thing. But she also talks about this, which I think is really important and something that I always highlight to folks when I uh, am with them at, at, at a funeral about this ritual is that, you know, in one way it symbolizes, uh, you know, the breaking of our heart, the tear in the fabric of our lives. Um, and it also uh, is a reminder of the grief process because, if I were to take, you know, the, that article of clothing or that ribbon and I, I could sew it back up and it could be whole again, um, but it will never look the same uh, as it did before it was torn. Right. And that, I think, is what you're uh, pointing out about the about loss and, and grief um, is that 
over time, we put our lives back together, sometimes in more healthy ways, sometimes in less healthy ways, depending on, you know, the, 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 the nature of the loss, the nature of the person, the process of grief, the relationship to whatever, all those things um, that we move on uh, in, in some ways. But the, um, the, the loss is still present with us. The, the tear in the fabric of our lives is still present with us. And that never goes away. You know, I, I appreciate what you said. The analogy I use when you bring something to the tailor, when you tear a garment, they repair it. And from a distance, it looks mm. no different. It looks as good as new. But when you inspect it up close, you could see where the repair was. You could see the remnants of that tear. And I think that that's also the challenge with grief, that society expects we just move on, right? You get up from Shiva and you go back to work. Uh, right partially because we need that distraction of life uh, and right. How do we, what do we do when we get up from Shiva? How do we conclude Shiva? We go for a walk around the block to reenact and re-engage with the world to remind us that even though times has stopped for us, the world keeps going, the world keeps turning um, and we're expected to move on. But we also acknowledge that that's a little bit of a facade, at least for some time that from a distance, like the tailor who repaired that tear, that tear in our hearts and our souls, we look no different, but up close, that tear will always remain. And what's interesting is that Daniel Levy's character, Mark, goes through this grief ultimately with those closest to him, because what he's saying is that with those closest to him, with community, you're allowed to show that that tear exists, right? With with colleagues, with strangers, with society, right? We're supposed to say things are good as new, right? When somebody says, hi, how are you? You're not supposed to stop and with bags under your eyes and your watery eyes. You're still wearing sunglasses because any moment could be a trigger for, for uncontrollable, uncontrollable tears. We're not supposed to say, I'm actually really struggling because of the loss. We're supposed to say, I'm fine. How are you? But with those closest to us, and that's what community is. That's what a, a minion is. We have shoulders to lean on, to cry on, to support us so that we can, right, ritualistically say Kaddish, but more fundamentally not go through grief alone and be our genuine selves with those who are close to us. Well, right. And, and that that is something, you know, uh, um it was in a way it was kind of presented without comment in, in the movie. Um, but it was pretty clear that um, Daniel Levy's character didn't really have a community. Um, uh, he had a couple of close friends who, you know, who, who uh, walked with him uh, very intimately during the course of that year that right. helped him get through that year. Um, but we saw, you know, the community that he shared with his husband um, and they essentially abandoned him uh, by, you know, almost by the, by the, by the time the funeral was over, right. They had all, they had all left already. Well, because his they... husband was so famous, right. his, his identity was defined almost as his husband's husband. Right. And and that's also a piece of this, right? And that's a piece of, of, of the grieving process is, is discerning one's identity outside the context of that relationship. And that was something that I think uh, was missing in Daniel Levy's grieving process that he only quite realized was necessary um, 
after he had realized his husband's, his late husband's betrayal, that he needed to now do a different kind of grieving process, grieve that relationship, grieve that person new, and, and define his own identity outside of the context of that relationship. So it was almost like he had to start fresh. And I could, and I could uh, understand um, his, uh, his friend's frustration uh, with, with that, because there is something uh, inherently uh, selfish uh, or self-absorbed um, about uh, about grief. Uh, I think that that is another aspect of uh, of wisdom from the Jewish tradition: the recognition uh, that, on the one hand, um, it is okay and required on some level um, for the mourner to uh, to do what the mourner needs and to provide have the mourner be sort of the center of attention, the cent the center of the community circle at least for a period of time. We focus on them, and they're rightly able to focus on uh, themselves and, and and navigating through their loss. Um, but that uh, the process of grief shouldn't end there, shouldn't end with that self-absorption, um, that it should also include aspects of, like you said, right, um, getting back into uh, uh, showing up for community. The community shows up at your house for seven days. And after that, like, you've got to go to shul to make the minion, just to use the religious uh, aspect of it, right? You've got to go to work. You've actually got to uh, be a productive member of society um, because, yes, your loss is about you, but if you only uh, uh, process it, you know, as an inner journey, um, you actually uh, it can do more. It can do a lot of harm uh, it, uh, to to be kind of wrapped up in yourself like that. So we are we are actually required um, to push back out. In fact, after uh, um, uh, at the end of Shiva, um, uh, there's an obligation. Uh, first of all, the symbol of leaving Shiva is to get up and walk outside your house, right? You like we're we're entering back into community, we're entering back into society, we're entering back into uh, presence with and responsibility for other people, not just having people responsible for us. And at the end of Shloshim, uh, when when it's customary for a person, you know, to continue uh, uh, not shaving uh, uh, and uh, practicing other kind of uh, marks of mourning, um, to say to them. Um, you know, you look terrible. You need to clean yourself up, uh, or some version of that um, at the end of uh, at the end of that process. Right, um, not in a rude way, not in a superficial right. way, but but it's a way that that you're supposed to tell them it's time to move on to the next stage of warning mourning because if you don't, they never will. Right, exactly, and and it's why uh, part of the process of grieving, in particular, uh, when we uh, mark. Uh, the memory of a loved one at, at Yisker services, um, at Yort sites, there's a custom of uh, pledging uh, or participating in an act of tzedakah uh, um, in honor of the memory of our loved one. Uh, because again, um, yes, it's an honor to their memory, um, and maybe the causes that they loved and, uh, and embraced in the world, etc. But it's also, I think, a reminder um, that we can't live entirely um in our own sort of inner world of grief, that we have broader responsibilities beyond just ourselves, that there's this give and take where it's, you know, the, the uh, I guess, cliche, but famous uh, teaching of, of Hillel's, right? Uh, um, right? Uh, that if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? I got to focus on my own journey of grief. Um, but if I am only for myself, right, then, then what am I? 
right? And that I think was something that David Levy's, uh, Daniel Levy's character, excuse me, learns in the course of the movie, uh, in some ways the hard way that he spent a year being only for himself and not actually having an identity beyond himself, a, a sense of broader responsibility beyond himself that uh, ends up impacting even his relationships with those who were closest to him and helped him through the process of grief in the first place. I think that's, that's fair, right? That, that that's, didn't acknowledge how they were there for him when he needed them most. You know, I think the other reason that we have these stages of grief that are set up, uh, somebody once asked me, why is Shiva only seven days? And I said that, you know, besides the fact that it's a week, right? The seven represents completion and it's completing a stage of of mourning and grief. If we did not have an end to Shiva, we'd always sit Shiva. We would never get out of that first stage of grief, right? It, you look at people who don't have Jewish ritual, um, and, and what do we we do when, when we lose a loved one? We're under the covers, curled up in the fetal position. We don't want to get out of bed, uh, right? Ritual helps us move on from stage to stage of grief, and in many ways. Um, and I think that that is really important to note as well, that we have these stages of grief to help us move on, even when we aren't ready to, even when we feel like we aren't ready to, because in some ways we are never ready to, right? We need them to force us to move on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Uh, there's there's also an aspect to this. Um, you know, uh, one thing I did like, although I felt like it was kind of unearned, was, was the final scene in the movie where uh, Daniel Levy's character um, uh, uh, finally produces his own art and and uh, has a, a showing of of new pieces. Um, and among them are, you know, is a self portrait. Um, a, a, portraits of, of his friends and, and portraits of his uh, uh, late husband that are all kind of, you know, like uh, it, I think are meant to be very lovingly rendered uh, uh, portraits, including the one of, of his late husband that, the, that um, you know, what, what he comes to at the end of this was being able to um, uh, uh, accept the, you know, what had happened to him, right? To to um, accept the journey that he had been on, to uh, be able to remember his late husband uh, uh, lovingly, even through the pain and even through the hurt. There is um, a, a sequence of partiot, uh, usually in the spring from the book of Leviticus. Um, uh, uh, the one is uh, Parshat Achremot, which means after the death. It begins with after the death of Aaron's sons, Achremot. Um, and uh, then, and the next week's Parsha is Kedoshim to you. You shall be holy. Um, and uh, there's a you know maybe it's a rabbinic joke or just a or, or just an observation um, that that those Parshiot are sometimes actually connected to one another when it's not a leap year uh, that you read them on the same week. Uh, uh, but that also sometimes describes the the, the sequence of, of grief or how we're we're uh, told we're supposed to process grief, right? Achremot kedoshim to you. After death, um, uh, the the person that died will will be you know uh, venerated, sanctified. Um, that uh, that 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 uh, that when a person passes away, it has a way of 
like causing it in our memory to kind of you know, smooth away the rough edges um, that actually give a person uh, uh, depth and, and dimension. Um, uh, it actually diminishes the totality of a person. And I think true uh, um, healthy grief enables us not to um, beatify uh, our, our our lost loved ones, to remember, of course, their positive qualities, but to try to hold them um, as complete human beings uh, with both positive and negative qualities, um, which I, I think is uh, really important. You know, I, I, we just had Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, a couple of weeks ago as we record this, um, and, and that is certainly true of public figures uh, like like Martin Luther King, um, that we you know remember his extraordinary accomplishments and, and profound legacy, um, but not necessarily uh, his shortcomings as a person, of which he had several, um, and uh, and and also the the rougher parts of uh, his legacy that uh, that that certain segments of of our culture, especially in the political sphere, don't want to remember because it's inconvenient uh, to remember the the radicalism of uh, of, of someone like uh, like King um, in in different uh, aspects of of his leadership and ministry. Um, so I think that that is one thing that the that the movie does a good job of showing is kind of moving through that process and saying, you know, um, it's actually not healthy to remember. Uh, our loved ones when they die um, as flawless saints, um, that the healthy dimension of grief um, is to be able to hold the memory of our loved ones uh, lovingly, uh, but also fully and, and realistically. Well, I would say two thoughts. One, I appreciate you bringing up the parshiot of Acharemo Kedoshim, right? Interestingly, Acharemo is several parshiot after uh, oh. Parshat Shmini, when Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's sons, actually die, right? They're consumed by fire. And what happens, right? After they're consumed by fire, Torah tells us, Vidomaharon, right? And Aaron was silent. He didn't know how to process what just happened. And it takes several Parshas, several Parshios, several Torah portions for him to grapple with that reality and move on. I think in some ways uh, that the Torah is spot on and, and in explaining and understanding how we ourselves process grief, that it takes us time to adjust to the reality that, that there's a, a denial, right? That takes place at, at first before an acceptance. Um, and while I agree with you that we are not supposed to remember our loved ones as flawless perfect beings. I do think that there is power in us understanding that we have the power of memory is that we have a choice in how we remember them, right? That we have a choice in the memories that we hold on to. And is there beauty in us holding on to heartache long after they're gone and left this world, heartache that can, can never be repaired, right? Or in order to be stronger individuals, in order to be more whole individuals, in order to be happier in this world and adjusting to this world that is somewhat torn because our loved one is no longer walking this earth, are we able to choose the memories that we hold on to and how we remember them for the good, for the better, so that we are stronger, so that we are, are more full beings as a result? Yeah, it's a really great uh, point that you're making. I mean, I think that uh, uh, 
we say in 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 Hebrew, as we recall, loved one, right? Zichrono livracha, uh, or zichrona livracha. You know, may their memory be a blessing, or may their memory be for a blessing. And I, and you know, usually I think of those translations as kind of interchangeable, uh, um, and and te- gravitate toward the um, more contemporary uh, uh, version of it. Of may, may their memory be a blessing, uh, because it, it does, in a, in a sense, mean the same thing. But I actually do think that there can be a subtle nuance there um, that uh, that. Uh, you know, either, you know, is their me- memory inherently a blessing, right? Or uh, uh, can we draw from their memory um, uh, in a way or our memory of them in a way that uh, enables them to be a blessing, right? That's the for a blessing, right? So uh, I think that that is what you're saying, um, that, uh, that, you know, memory is active. Um, we, we, it doesn't just have the, the, the facts um, and moments of a person's life, but we string it together in a, in a narrative and in, in a story of how we remember a person, why we remember them and what we remember them for, what's the directionality of, of that memory. Um, and, uh, and, and so I do think that that's important. I don't think that that necessarily means, you know, if, uh, if, if a loved one, like, like as was the case in good grief, right? If a loved one uh, betrayed us, hurt us, um, that, um, you know, we need to like posthumously forgive them uh, or something like that. In a way, we can hold on to that heartache for whatever good that it that it does. Um, uh, but uh, you know, uh, regrets, guilt, whatever it is, right? Uh, these things are part of our experience and part of our memory of them too. Um, but I think that they, they can also be part of the blessing. I think that those are the uh, moments that. Uh, that that enable us to that might enable us to say okay moving forward in my life you know here's how I navigate relationships differently having had that experience um, uh, here is uh, how I will help other people uh, who may be going through similar kinds of things um, uh, you know that doesn't have that can be present but it doesn't have to be um, a, a, an active uh, a live part of, uh, of of our experience anymore we can let go of that on some level without um we can sort of uh forgive it in a larger sense um without forgetting about it altogether right it's that uh we are shaped by our love and we're also shaped by the losses in our lives um and it's how we move forward because of those losses in spite of those losses as a result of those losses and how we're able to hold on to that love from those people, from those individuals who we love dearly, who loved us dearly, following their losses. That's what shapes us going forward. Amen. Well, we want to know what you thought of good grief. Uh, did you love it? How will you remember it? Um, will its memory be a blessing or for a blessing uh, for you moving forward? Uh, let us know what you thought uh, and feel free to share the podcast, subscribe. Uh, and uh, rate and review us so more people can uh, take part in our conversation. Uh, But uh, until next time, I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Take care, everyone.